Hey everyone, it's Patrick. I've got some exciting news. In this episode, you may hear some allusions to the fact that our iOS ITB app is not yet out, but actually that's not true. It is actually out now, finally released. So go to the App Store on iOS, type in Inside the Boards, download our app for exclusive and expanded shows, early access to content or podcasts that we're going to be releasing in the future, some meditations designed specifically for medical students with the hope that they'll be used during your dedicated USMLE prep time to help you stay a little bit healthier. And then, of course, high-yield samples from our All Audio QBank and the option to purchase a subscription. If you're a previous subscriber via Podbean, keep an eye on your email. We'll be sending you instructions on how to transfer your current subscription so that you can access the Audio QBank on the new iOS app. It is a beta version. It's not perfect, but I think it is perfect as a companion to help you study on the go while you're driving, working out, whatever you have to do in life. We're hoping to give you back some time through producing this Audio QBank. Thank you for being patient with me as we've gone through this journey together. I'm very excited about Inside the Boards. I'm very excited about helping you with your medical education. And hopefully we're able to do at least something to make your lives a little bit better. So thank you so much for listening. Go download our app. I've been on a low. I've been taking my time. I feel like I'm out of my mind. It feel like my life ain't mine. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. I am Patrick Beeman, your host. Today, it's another entry in our audio blog series sponsored by Med School Tutors. We're covering two articles today, one a question dissection, a 34-year-old woman with hypertension, and don't fall off the shelf, some guidance for the shelf exams. We're running a mini Step 2 Study Smarter series for internal medicine over on the Study Smarter podcast channel. So Look in the show notes, click the link, or just search inside the boards and look for our other podcast channel for some high-yield internal medicine review, breaking down questions related to your internal medicine shelf or the IM portion of uh, the Step 2 boards. And then for you first and second years out there, our Step 1 Study Smarter series will launch early April and run through the end of June where we will break down high-yield questions, teaching you to approach them, answer them, and avoid the mistakes that often are made when prepping for your exams or, more importantly, actually taking the test. And it might be targeted for step one, but because the principles we teach of how to approach and dissect a practice question for your exams are universally applicable to all steps, it's still worth a listen for those of you who are beyond first and second year. But before we launch into those readings, can I just say how cool is that intro music? The track is 1-800-273-8255 off Logic's album Everybody. I just want to thank Chris Zaru of the Visionary Music Group for giving us permission to use this song 
Uh, as you know, oftentimes we try to highlight the importance of taking care of one's mental health and to raise awareness about the uh, burnout crisis and, and crisis of mental health uh, within and outside of medicine. So this track is actually the number to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. Logic, as an artist, has been uh, very vocal about topics like depression, anxiety, and mental illness. And this track was wildly popular with over three quarters of billion streams on Spotify alone. So thank you again, Chris Saru and Logic, for letting us use this track. Keep doing what you're doing to help destigmatize mental illness. Here we go with today's content. I started my third year with my surgery rotation. While I knew it was going to be time-consuming, I was excited to interact with patients, work in the hospital, and never have to think about glycolysis again, which isn't entirely true, but that's a topic for another time. I knew I had a shelf exam at the end of the rotation, but at that point it was so far away and I was more concerned with succeeding on the wards. I would cross that bridge when I came to it. While I enjoyed my surgery rotation, the time commitment was as intensive as I had expected, and then some. It got to the point when I came home for the day, I was barely able to greet my roommates, cook myself dinner, and change out of my scrubs, which was probably the hardest part because scrubs are basically doctor pajamas. The thought of doing any studying was laughable. It didn't help that I would tell myself I actually was studying because of what I saw every day. When the exam was one week away, I finally started to actually study and quickly came to a tough realization of how woefully underprepared I was. There were many topics I had never seen before, and even the ones I had seen were never in the context of a multiple-choice question. The next week was sleepless and long, but I managed to scrape by. However, I did promise myself I would not be caught in this same predicament for the six remaining shelf exams I had. This led me to create a manifesto for studying shelf exam content that I hope you find as helpful as I did. Number one, determine the high-yield topics that need to be covered, and make a schedule that covers all of them with at least a couple days before the shelf exam. I thought the online med-ed video series was very good for providing an outline of the high-yield topics. Your study time is much more valuable for the shelf exams as it is harder to come by, which makes your schedule all that more important. Next, don't drive yourself crazy with a strict daily schedule. There are some days you will joyfully skip out of the hospital at 4.45 p.m. and others you will be scarfing down cafeteria chicken nuggets at 7 p.m. because you are already late for your next case. If you go home on those late days with the feeling that you also need to read four chapters of Pistanas that night, it will cause you undue stress and make you try to study when you aren't retaining anything. I recommend creating weekly tasks so that those days when you do get home early, you can do a little extra that night, and when you end up leaving at 9 p.m., you don't feel obligated to stay up until 1 a.m. Next, you will not be fully prepared for the shelf exams by only learning from the patients and cases you see during your days on the wards. These are certainly important, and I do believe that seeing a disease firsthand is the best way to learn it, but there is no way you're going to see everything you need to know for urology and ophthalmology and surgical oncology in eight weeks or less. You need to sit down and read about these topics in order to succeed. Next, like step one, don't overwhelm yourself with the number of resources for each rotation. There are so many books, flashcard sets, such as Memorang's IM Shelf Deck, and videos for every single shelf. 
No matter which rotation it is, it is better to pick a few quality resources and truly go through them than skim a whole bunch of them. Next, don't marry yourself to one series of resources for each rotation, such as blueprints, first aid, etc. Case files for OBGYN was by far my most valuable resource for that rotation. Case files for internal medicine was insufficient for the shelf exam. Ask your peers or residents if they have any resources that really help them prepare for the shelf exam you have coming up. You'll find, as you go along, that you will prefer a different resource for each rotation. Finally, it is okay to give up on a resource. If it is simply not working for you, you don't have to keep using it, even if your bestie loved it. While this holds true for step one as well, it becomes a little more urgent for shelf exams because there is less study time to waste on an ineffective resource. Hopefully these help. Study hard for the shelves, but keep in mind that if you survive step one, you can survive anything. And lastly, enjoy third year if, for no other reason, then you sometimes get away with wearing doctor pajamas at work. Hi, everybody. This is Greg Rodden. I'm host of the Med School Fizz podcast, and I'm here to help the team at Inside the Boards in their collaboration with Med School Tutors. This Med School Tutors blog post is titled USMLE Step 1 Question Breakdown, 34-Year-Old Woman with Elevated Blood Pressure, posted by Graham Boyd on September 27, 2017. A 34-year-old woman with no significant past medical history presents to the clinic for a follow-up visit after an elevated blood pressure at her last physical examination. In clinic today, her blood pressure is 160 over 100. Cardiac examination is unremarkable and all pulses are full and equal. There are no signs of peripheral edema. On laboratory evaluation, plasma renin activity is found to be low and serum creatinine levels are normal. The patient receives an abdominal CT which reveals bilateral enlargement of the adrenal glands. Which of the following serum lab values are you likely to see in this patient? Is it A, normal sodium, high potassium, low pH? B, high sodium, low potassium, low pH? C, low sodium, low potassium, high pH? Or D, normal sodium, low potassium, high pH? And the correct answer is D normal sodium, low potassium, high pH, in the serum. When approaching this USMLE-style question, one of the most important test-taking strategies for the USMLE is to begin building a differential as you go through a question stem. If you're not already coming up with a list of possible diagnoses, you'll waste valuable time during your exam blocks. So let's go through this question line by line and see what information we can use to help shape our differential. To begin, let's consider the patient demographics. This is a young woman, and young women are generally a healthy cohort, demonstrated here by an unremarkable medical history. As such, she's highly unlikely to get essential hypertension, which is the most common cause of high blood pressure. When we see there's evidence of an elevated blood pressure in this kind of patient, we should immediately begin thinking about the possibility or probability of secondary hypertension. Now let's move on to the physical findings. The unremarkable cardiac exam with no evidence of edema tells us that this patient is not in fluid overload. Full and equal pulses bilaterally helps to direct us away from possible vascular diseases like fibromuscular dysplasia, which can be seen in this kind of patient population. The laboratory finding of a low plasma renin activity is possibly the most important piece of information in this question stem. 
If we suspect secondary hypertension in this scenario and the renin is elevated, the hypertension is likely due to poor renal blood flow, secondary to renal artery stenosis or fibromuscular dysplasia, for example. In these scenarios, the serum creatinine would be elevated as well. However, we see a decrease in the plasma renin activity, meaning that there's likely a defect further along in the RAS pathway, causing this secondary hypertension. Our suspicions are confirmed by the presence of bilateral adrenal hyperplasia. The only adrenal hormone in the RAS pathway is aldosterone, which we know promotes the uptake of sodium in water. And this fits well within our framework of secondary hypertension with low plasma renin. An increase in cortisol secretion, like in Cushing syndrome, could also cause hypertension in low plasma renin. However, we do not see any other features of excess cortisol exposure in this patient, like central adiposity um, with the buffalo hump or moon facies, uh, facial plethora, or striae. Now, applying our knowledge to the answer options. Now that we've made our diagnosis of hypertension secondary to high aldosterone levels, we can turn our attention to the electrolyte and pH changes that we'll see with hyperaldosteronism. Aldosterone primarily acts on the principal cells of the renal collecting tubule, causing a reuptake in sodium and water. The sodium reuptake causes a negative charge to form in the collecting tubule, which is then balanced out by the principal cells secreting potassium into the tubule. The alpha intercalated cells of the collecting tubule will also secrete hydrogen ions as a part of this process, and the net result of aldosterone is an increase in sodium reabsorption with an increase in potassium and hydrogen excretion, reflected in serum lab values as low potassium and high pH. We do not see any evidence of volume overload or dehydration on physical exam, which is important to note because serum sodium levels are a reflection of total body water. We also expect that the kidney will compensate for increased sodium reabsorption by increasing water reabsorption as well, limiting an increase in the serum sodium concentration. The resulting intravascular volume will increase both renal blood flow and atrial natriuretic peptide release, both of which will help to lower serum sodium and intravascular volume levels, preventing any significant change in the serum sodium concentration. This concept is known as aldosterone escape, and it's integral to understanding why we do not see hypernatremia or volume overload in cases of hyperaldosteronism. And putting these pieces together, we arrive at the correct answer of D, normal serum sodium, low potassium, high pH. Inside the Boards has two other podcasts besides this show, the Inside the Boards Study Smarter Podcast Question Dissections for the USMLE Comlex and Medical School. That show is focused exclusively now on high-yield question dissections for both the USMLE Step 2 and Shelf exams, as well as Step 1. Each year, as you probably know, we have completed a Step 1 Study Smarter series. At the end of March, we will be doing that again. So check that out. We also have our newest podcast, The Medical Mnemonist, that's spelled like mnemonic, hosted by our own Chase DeMarco. That show is focused on accelerated learning techniques and memory hacks, well worth your time. And stay tuned, we will be adding two additional podcasts, one to help you with your step two preparation, and another to help you with your step one dedicated study. 
Again, I just want to thank Chris Zeru and Logic for letting us use the track 1-800-273-8255 off Logic's 2017 album, Everybody. The song title is the number to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline and is really a socially conscious statement using art. I love it. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death overall in the United States, as well as the second leading cause of death among people between the ages of 10 and 34. A February 2019 academic medicine paper noted that gaps exist in knowledge of medical students' suicide rates, risk factors, and targets for intervention, but some reports identify 400 U.S. doctors as committing suicide every year. That should really piss us all off. We go into this field to help people and often forget to help ourselves. I believe part of the moral burden on us as students and physicians is to address this issue in some way. In a larger context, there is a suicide contagion within our culture as a whole and within our community specifically. Here at Inside the Boards, we at least want to do our small part, like logic and encourage others to reach out when they need help. The awesome call to become a physician implies a commitment to take care of yourself so that you can take care of patients. Kind of like Jesus said, physician, heal thyself. And we'll see you back next time.